You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Well, if you have a Bible, I want to ask you to open it to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, our text for us this evening. If you're just joining us for the first time tonight and have not been with us in previous weeks, we're concluding tonight what has been a four-part series for us in Matthew 19, specifically verses 1 through 12. Three weeks ago, rather four weeks ago, we started in a series answering the question, why Jesus cares about your gender. Then we took a look at why Jesus cares about your relationship. And then we took a look at last week, why Jesus cares about your marriage. Well, tonight, as we're working our way through the entire book of Matthew, as we've been doing in the previous months, we'll continue to do so in Matthew 19 in the weeks ahead. But tonight, we'll finish this section in Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. We'll be answering the question, why Jesus cares about your divorce? Why Jesus cares about your divorce? Part one of tonight, I want to take a look at the culture's take on divorce. As a point of compare and contrast, that's not simply an abstract conversation. It's not even an academic one. To many of us here tonight, myself included, living lives that have been impacted by this topic of divorce. Last week in our time together, we briefly learned how people have a low view of marriage and many are increasingly choosing to not get married, but rather to live with another person, just bypassing marriage altogether indefinitely, even to the point of having children together, with only but a small percentage of them going on to be married later. But for those who do get married, there's always kind of a get-out-of-marriage card that we like to keep in our wallet. Maybe not the front of it, but at least in the back of it, and if necessary, that get-out-of-marriage card is indeed what we know today as divorce. Divorce has become increasingly common in our country. Right around 50% of the United States of our married couples divorce. We have the sixth highest divorce rate of all countries in the world. We are so inclined to divorce. Uh, Subsequent marriages have an even higher divorce rate. Uh, Statistically speaking, 50% of all marriages end in divorce, 60% of all second marriages end in divorce, and if you decide to get married a third time, statistically speaking, 73% of all third marriages end in divorce. Back in May of 2020, when we were not meeting because of COVID, but working our way through the book of Matthew, we came to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, when Jesus first was addressing this topic of divorce and marriage. And I'll share again some of what I shared then. 60% of couples who live together do eventually marry. However, living together prior to marriage increases your chance of getting divorced by up to 40%. So if you're wanting to give yourself a higher chance of marriage failure, then you should live together before you get married. The average length of marriage that ends in divorce is eight years long. Interestingly, by occupation, many people think law enforcement has a high divorce rate, yet interestingly, nurses are two times as likely 
to be divorced than those in law enforcement. By way of compare and contrast, and commendably, if you're in the military, the military divorce rate is only 3%, unless you're in the Navy SEALs, and then your divorce rate is as high as 90%. Be better off if you've not even got married if you're going to go in the, into the Navy SEALs. The average cost of divorce in America right now is $15,000. That should be considered when divorce is being factored in. Additionally, a single divorce costs the state and federal governments about $30,000. $30,000. You say, why would it cost the government $30,000 if I get divorced? Well, based on such things as higher use of food stamps, public housing, as well as increased bankruptcies, juvenile delinquency, it costs even the state we live in, Florida, and the country we live in, the United States. Every 13 seconds, there's a divorce happening in America. That equates to 277 divorces per hour, 6,646 divorces per day, 46,523 divorces per week, 2,419,000 divorces per year. That means in the time it takes one couple to recite their wedding vows at the wedding altar, nine couples in that time are getting divorced. That's sober-minded in our consideration of the topic of marriage and its relationship to divorce. Divorces can be emotionally and financially difficult, but they even affect everyone else around them. A lot of you are children of divorces. I am as well. Perhaps as an adult, you have been divorced. It affects everyone, not only the children, it turns out it affects the pets as well. Elaine Povich, writing for the Pew Charitable Trust, tells us that custody of pets has now become a major issue in the United States. Since many married adults have a low view of children these days, either opting out to not have any children because of, well, their children, or wanting to have very few of them because of just a common challenge with children, they choose and often to elect to have pets instead. There are more custody cases at any point in history about the comes to the custody issues of pets. In fact, while there have been some custody battles over horses, iguanas, snakes, parrots, and even turtles, none of which I'm making up, 88% of all custody battles over pets pertain to who gets the dog. 88% of all custody battles over the pets is over who gets the dog. The closest animal by comparison are cats. That's only 5% of marriages fighting over the cats. That basically means... Most couples are like, if you want them, you can have them. But the dog is another topic altogether. That one I'm willing to get a lawyer on and lawyer up on in this conversation. We're turning to the topic of divorce. According to U.S. Census Bureau today, the top three reasons for divorce are, number one, incompatibility. We just no longer are compatible together. 43% of couples say that's the reason for breaking up. Second is unfaithfulness. Someone has cheated on someone else. That's 28% of all couples. Or money issues. We're fighting over money to the point we're willing to end our marriage. That's 22% of all couples. These topics and more are why I tell all engaged couples that they really should go through premarital counseling before they get married. In fact, I would even say to many of them, they should probably go through premarital counseling before they get even engaged. A lot of times when couples are engaged, all they're thinking about is their wedding day. Even when you give them counsel, like, I'm sure this is important, but she is so special. 
And he is so cute. And they're so naive to the reality of what often waits them in marriage. There is an entire tabloid industry built around celebrity relationships. Who's dating who? Who got pregnant by who? Who's getting married? Who's getting divorced? From Nicolas Cage's four-day marriage to Kim Kardashian's former relationship with Chris Humphreys, where Humphreys proposed after seven months of dating, they were engaged for 90 days, but then their marriage only lasted 72 days. But that marriage has been forgotten because she went on to marry Kanye West, who lay lasted a total of seven years, which seems quite long in celebrity culture. Whether it's the headlines of TMZ's reports or the family update that you get over dinner about your second cousin who's getting a divorce from a woman that you can't quite remember her name. She was nice. It seems like as if divorce is so common for us. We're not even surprised by it. We don't even flinch about it. We just come to accept it. Well, we might tell ourselves that that's common, but it turns out God thinks of it differently than most of those around us and maybe even some of us. And that leads us to our second part tonight, which is God's take in divorce, which gets us back to Matthew 19 for the evening. Matthew 19, follow along if you would, as I read to you, verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 7, but they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Stop there for our purposes tonight. It was accepted throughout Judaism at the time of Jesus and even before that men were allowed to divorce their wives. This is being referenced in passing in this conversation. It's a reference back to Deuteronomy 24 when they kind of bring Moses into the conversation, a reference that I've made to in previous weeks. So the question is now about on what grounds could a man divorce his wife? And there really is kind of two schools of thought that Jesus is being brought into, two common Jewish traditions of debate. The school of Shammai took a hard line and saw the meaning of, quote-unquote, some indecency, referenced back in Deuteronomy 24, as a reference to adultery, excuse me, as a reference to adultery. By this way, it would be recognized as being undeniable. That would be the only grounds. Well, interestingly, in the Old Testament, if a person committed adultery, the offense was to be responded with by capital punishment. That's a way to kind of minimize infidelity in your community. So it's basically saying, other than that, is there any other reason? And the, book of, the school of Shammai, rather, said, no, there is no other reason except for the case of adultery. 
But the school of Hillel allowed a much wider range of interpretation and application. For example, it permitted a man to divorce his wife if he spoiled, if rather if she spoiled his dinner. A collection of writings, the Jewish writings in the Mishnah, it adds the further information from one rabbi that allowed divorce, quote, even if he found another fairer than she. Now the woman got your attention more than the current wife you have. Well, you are allowed in that school of interpretation to divorce your current wife to pursue the other wife. What you have to recognize here is that the conversation is culturally centered around what men could do, not what women could do. Women in the first century, a wife was not permitted to divorce her husband, though she could petition the court based on her husband's actions And if the petition was accepted, the court would then direct her husband to divorce her. The whole idea of her certificate of divorce was intended as a protection for the woman. It was intended to protect the woman from an erratic husband who would not drive from his home, drive her from his home, and afterward, after she has been pushed out of the house, claim that she was still his wife. The reason why is because in first century Judaism, A woman could not live outside of the care of either her father or her husband, usually in most economic cases. She had to be provided for. Well, you would think that divorce would be common, therefore, in a time like that, if you had the more common interpretation of Hillel as being accepted, like anything would be allowed. But interestingly, at that time in the first century, on record, there was only about 4% cases of divorces. Quite different for a time like today, due to the 1970s of our country where we issued the no-fault divorce clause that basically did not require you to have to make a case for why you want a divorce. It was there to be claimed no fault, and therefore you'd be granted accordingly. I want you to recognize what Jesus is doing here in the text. For Jesus, as we saw earlier in the previous weeks, particularly last week, marriage was intended and designed by God, not by Moses, not by other men, designed by God to be a lifelong commitment. It goes back to what it says there in verse 6. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It places the binding reality of marriage first in the eyes of God, not men, judges and the like. It's who God says that this couple is. He is recognizing it in the reality of what's taking place. He also knows what Jesus is recognizing here. Back in verse 9, he acknowledges that there is the example of sexual immorality. And he is acknowledging that he recognizes that it is a reason for divorce. And he tells his audience that there's no other reason, any other reason would be invalid. But I want you to see the changing of the words. If you would, go back to what is asked of him in verse 7. Look how they phrase it. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? At this point in Jesus' time, the belief was, even if you took the conservative approach to what reasons would be allowed for someone to divorce, the conservative approach being only for the sake of unfaithfulness, that you were commanded to divorce your spouse. It's not how Jesus responds, though. Look at what he says here in verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed 
you to divorce your wives. He's wanting to make sure that there's a distinction, a difference to recognize what was allowed versus what was commanded. God is wanting, even in these extreme examples, not the marriage to end, but for it to be brought together. But the only reason the allowance is given is what? Verse 8 tells us, because of your hardness of heart. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is like, hey, if you are divorcing somebody else, it's always your hardness of heart. He is describing culturally what's true, what's true with all of humanity, which is the reality that we have marriages, we have relationships with each other on this side of the fall of Adam and Eve. Our hearts have been greatly affected. We have been corrupt. They are, in, in the words of a theological statement, they are depraved. Every part of us, every desire, our will, our emotions, our affections are indeed corrupted by sin. And that has affected our relationships. This has never been God's intention. Divorce was never something that He had designed to happen before the fall of Adam and Eve. He was simply acknowledging the consequence of sin and how it affects relationships, particularly those that are married. You see here what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not even picking sides. Jesus, are you with the Shammai group? Are you with the Hillel group? And he's like, well, I'm with the Shammai group. That's actually not what he's doing. He's saying, I'm with neither. Because while Shammai might get closer to it by saying it's only for the sake of sexual morality, they're still missing the mark in that. They're saying it's commanded. When it was never intended to be commanded, it was to be permitted. And this is significance. This is significant understanding here. What you use the word here, you can see if you jump down to verse 9, where he says, except for sexual immorality, it's a word that we use today, this word porneia is the Greek word here. It's a common word being used in a lot of different ways. And even today, if you hear the word pornography, that's what it's referring to, this idea of porneia. It's this immorality here. It's where we get the word, the, the root porne is where we get the word prostitute from. It's referring to illicit sexual activity among unmarried couples, which would be translated as fornication, or in the context of a marriage relationship, it would be referenced as adultery. It's important to understand that the divorced woman here, to recognize that she is made to commit adultery, that the man who she marries her is committing adultery if she has not been released from her previous marriage. But what Jesus is connecting amongst the Jews here was that they were to be faithful to each other only in extremely rare situations and even then with the goal towards reconciliation. But I want you to recognize also that Jesus does. It's not only correct the idea of command versus allow. He also recognizes the significance that this is binding by opportunity for both the man and the woman. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, you can keep your finger in Matthew 19. You go back to Matthew chapter 5. Look with me. Jesus, in this most famous sermon he's ever preached, Sermon on the Mount, says in verse 31, Matthew chapter 5, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What Jesus is doing here is he is distinguishing the responsibility here and this idea that he's making her commit. He is holding the man responsible. 
Too often in this cultural context, as we see back in the first century, the men were basically kind of living culturally under the expectation it wasn't ever them, it was the women. But the men are being held responsible here for their decisions. What you have to recognize is that no matter how immoral these activities were, Jesus only permitted divorce for such an offense. It's noticing the difference between permission versus prescription. If you have a spouse that's guilty of all kinds of things that's just been described, you're not commanded to walk away from that person. The goal in every possible way is to reconcile. Paul wrote about this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So is divorce a personal decision? Yes, but it's not a divine mandate. It's not a divine mandate. And sexual immorality is not some blanket that we just sort of smear across all immorality in marriages and say, aha, now you've done it, it's over. The next step is divorce court. Again, divorce being permitted in cases of sexual immorality is not commanded. We should be reminded of the reference point of Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, or verse 16 rather. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Only other time this is referenced in more specificity with additional opportunity by allowance, not by prescription, is 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is talking to a young group of Christians, very similar to their church here at Grace Church, who have come out of their non-Christian backgrounds, and many of them are married. They were married before they were Christians, and now that they're Christians, they realize, well, I'm a Christian, and my husband or my wife is not a Christian, should I now divorce them? This whole idea that we should not be joined together if we're not, so should we get divorced? And Paul's like, no, 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 don't do that. Stay with your spouse. Stay with them. In fact, by staying with them, they're going to receive benefits. Your spouse and your children are sanctified by your godly living. They're blessed. They're ben- they benefit from it. However, if your non-Christian spouse wants out of the marriage, for the sake of peace, let them go. It's not saying to fight against that. So we see here the significance of divorce how while it's so common in society, almost spoken about comically, the Scripture speaks of it very seriously, very sober-mindedly, and even in the situation about how it affects future marriages. Now, here's the irony of verse 9. You go back to verse 9, it says, I say to you, chapter 19, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What is that saying? That's saying, by instruction, don't go get married a second time if your marriage the first time was for the unbiblical reasons. Because if you do so, you'll be committing adultery, be unfaithful. But here's the, here's the catch-22. If you went ahead and got married, the Bible would clearly say in 1 Corinthians 6, remain as you are, don't get divorced. You're just making the problem worse. Stay as you are. It's not uncommon to have Christians realize, wow, as they look back on my first marriage, I wasn't taught any of this. I didn't even know any of this. Decisions I'm making were nothing like what I'm learning here tonight. Now it's making me second-guess the marriage I'm currently in. 
So I'm not only thinking differently about the former marriage, I'm thinking differently about my current marriage. What do I do now with my current marriage? You do nothing except be faithful to that current marriage. The situation here that Jesus is talking about is why you would keep yourself from going into that second marriage. But if you haven't done so, that you should not end that, but remain as you are and ask God to now use your faithfulness to that marriage to be a witness of the Lord's faithfulness to you. All of this might seem cultural or exegetical or biblical, but let me help perhaps make it more practical, which takes us to part three, what we should do, what we should do. There's six things I want to teach us tonight in light of this, and I hope these to be helpful to you. I've said this already, and I want to just make sure that I'm not being missed when I say this. Divorce is not just some academic subject written about by sociologists and by pastors who don't quite understand the reality of the marriages you're living in. Divorce is a very personal conversation that many, many, many lives have been deeply affected by, either as a child or as a spouse. And by no means can one single sermon say everything there is to say on it, nor could one single time with you and a group like this speak to your specific situation that otherwise a one-on-one conversation in a counseling context would greater and more helpfully allow. So with that being noted, let me share these six things. Number one, marriage should be held in high esteem. The implication of what Jesus is teaching here is that marriage should be held in high esteem. Reviewing what we covered last week, I want us to think highly of marriage. Aspire to it. Be wise about entering into it. Unless, of course, you think God has given you the gift of singleness for the purpose of doing more kingdom work than you otherwise could otherwise do, more kingdom of God work than you otherwise could do. If that's not what you are aspiring to and not what you feel called to, then aspire to marriage. But it also means if, you, if and when you get married, you need to close and lock the door of your commitment to each other and throw away the key. In other words, you need to understand that marriage will introduce you to disappointment in a profound way. You will have the greatest of times and the greatest of hurts. You will be shocked to find out someone that you seemingly loved so much and has loved you so much will can hurt you so deeply. And you will wonder if that's an indication that you've either A, made a mistake in getting married, Or B, maybe didn't make a mistake, but now because of the situation you find yourself in, you should end the marriage. Friends, what you've just moved from is the transition from romance to reality. I'm doing premarital counseling with two couples right now in our church, and the title of the book that we're reading together is titled, When Sinners Say I Do. When Sinners Say I Do. It's not a book that teaches first and foremost about Uh, sexual intimacy or financial clarity or communication. It teaches the reality of how the gospel is brought to bear on your understanding of each other and on yourself. Number two, divorce should be thought of carefully. Divorce should be thought of carefully. I will often tell couples that get married that it is easy to get married. Now, I know some of you are like, really? Because I'm having a hard time just getting a date. Hear me out. 
The idea, the practice of getting married is not hard. I mean, you literally can like go down to the clerk of courts with some participating person, and when in doubt, international weddings happen all the time, and you can, you can make that ceremony happen as quickly and as easily as possible. Getting married is easy. Now, having a good marriage, oh, that's another conversation. That takes some work. Having a great marriage, that takes a lot of work. A lot of work. I find most people want to, aspire to, and hope to one day have a great marriage. But very few people put in the hard work. Or one person might put in the hard work, but the other person might not. And so the challenge comes when that happens, when you realize from the aspiration to the reality of where your current situation is, is to think, well, instead, maybe divorce sits temptingly close to you. Because after all, what happens in divorce is you often imagine a future outside of these current problems. We'll be done fighting. There'll be no more of this sort of current conflict we're in. And I don't want to act like that that's not in some situations true. But the problem is, like our, our hearts are often imagining to do and inclined to do, is we imagine a future free of conflict, only to forget that while it might be removing one conflict, it just creates another one that fills that vacuum. And the reality is it should be thought of very carefully. Now, to be clear, separation from each other in the context of marriage is a tool and a resource that sometimes can and should be utilized. But it should be seen as a tool to establish objectivity relationally and some emotional stability, not as a way to start to try out and role play and test drive divorce. As a way to like prepare the kids for the announcement to come. Now, of course, there are extreme examples, like in the situation of physical abuse or otherwise. In that situation, as pastors ourselves and other godly people would counsel to immediately separate yourself for the sake of safety and sanity, and then others can help step in and help triage the issues. So we're not saying to maintain some type of abusive environment by no means, but separation and divorce are to be seen as two separate conversations. Third implication of what we're thinking about in light of what Jesus is teaching is that counsel and counseling should be utilized resources. Counsel and counseling should be utilized resources. Here's what I mean. I often find a lot of times people have bad marriages in isolation and seek very little prayer and counsel from each other as friends. The Scripture clearly speaks about in the context of the body of Christ how we bear each other's burdens. Now, this is not a chance to just throw our spouse in the bus and gossip about them all day long, but it's a chance to identify where there are struggles and where you could use some accountability and encouragement and counsel. And counseling is the opportunity for one, if not ideally both of you, to seek out help from your pastors, elders, from other professionals who can sit with you and begin to diagnose what exactly the problem is. There's an article that I referenced in our recent marriage series that I did a couple of months ago here on Friday nights on marriage. I encourage you to 
listen to it online if you've not done so. But the article that I reference, I'll reference again tonight, is titled, Why Pastors Can't Spot Church-Going Couples Headed for Divorce. And in it, the author, pastor, uh, the author says that pastors have difficulty helping couples save their marriages because churchgoers on the brink of separation and eventual divorce live plainly just like everybody else in front of us. At no point along the way did they indicate they're having a problem. The only time anybody learns of it is when the announcement is made. They do not seek help. They do not ask for counsel. And yet the reality is that God gives the gift of godly brothers and sisters in Christ competent pastors that are gifts from the Lord to His people that like any in any other area of the Christian life to help you fight and win. Too often couples are coming in with their announcement of their relationship being over before they're actually asking for help. If any of the members of the church here, we always tell them we would never want you to suffer in the situation. We want you to seek help from your elders. That we want to sit and counsel you and walk with you through that. That is a primary caring calling of you. It's not just to proactively teach you how to study your Bible, but also reactively how to get out of the situation that you're in right now. You might be headed towards divorce. We want to be very clear on record at Grace Church that for the members of Grace Church, we want to care for you and pursue you and love you and never let you get in that situation. Number four. Prayer demonstrates that you believe that God can do what you cannot do. Prayer demonstrates that you believe that God can do what you can't do. Yes, it's true. Books can be read. I have many to recommend to you. Counsel can be sought. Many people can offer you advice. Sins can be overlooked. Turns out you commit a few yourself. But there's a point in a difficult marriage where you're out of energy and out of ideas. And while you should have been praying the entire time versus sort of waiting until it gets very bad at the end, prayer is a powerful gift from God that essentially says, I cannot keep doing this without you. I need your help, God. Paul speaks of his ministry in Colossians chapter 1, 28 and 29, designed to present everyone mature in Christ, teaching, admonishing, loving, serving, pursuing and he says in verse 29 that I work mightily by the power of the Spirit that works within me. Paul's ministry to others was Spirit-filled. Friends, for those of you who are married, your primary ministry, your neighbor that you wake up to, to love, as especially your love for God and then love for neighbor, is your husband or your wife. And if we're just honest, to those of you who are single, listen up. There are many days you just do not want to do that. Or you feel like you've done that and you kind of want to stop. Because though you know what's wrong, you've been kind of keeping a record. And there's like so many marks on your side of all things you've done and so little on their side. And you're just like, Lord, I don't, I don't know if I can keep going. And the answer to that is you're right. You, you, you alone cannot keep going. And that's why we have to lean to the Lord to seek His help in that time of despair as He strengthens our hand, fills our hearts with the reminder that we are not alone, have not been abandoned. The fifth implication to this is that we should model for our children 
not surprise our children. Model for our children, not surprise our children. How many times, maybe some of you are sitting here today, this is your biography as well, how many times have we heard of parents who waited till the children were out of the house and then they divorced? For some of them, it's because they knew it was coming the entire time, and the belief was they would wait until the children left and then they'd break the news because that would somehow be easier. And for others of them, it's that they weren't even aware of it. But over time, their marriage went from we love each other and we have kids to all we know is parenting, and our parenting is like a group project, but we've grown far apart from each other. Then once the kids leave, we kind of look at each other like, I don't even know you. And you don't really know me. It looks like we're even interested in each other anymore. What you want to be careful to do in your marriage is first and foremost to put the Lord first, and secondly, to put each other second. Too often, parents are tempted to make the children the primary goal in the relationship, and their love for each other and their attention to one another slowly wanes over time. They do not care for each other. They do not spend time together. They cannot think of the last time they've had a date. They do not understand what it means to be reconciled. Reconciliation and repentance have been long forgotten. You want your children to see that, you're, that their mom and dad, yeah, they sin, maybe even fight. And depending on the passion levels in your household, those might be noteworthy. But that they repent, that their parents ask for forgiveness, even of their children, asking forgiveness of their children for how they've conducted themselves in their marriage. That they recognize that God's Word is central to their mom and their dad. And that their mom and their dad are going to do whatever pleases the Lord. Sixth and final, review the gospel in your life so that you can treat your spouse in light of it. Review the gospel in your life so you can treat your spouse in light of it. It's so easy to say, take the speck out of your own eye while you take a look at the log in your spouse's eye. But that's not how Jesus says it in Matthew. Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye before you start to address the speck in another's eye. The reality is, start with a position of similarity, not difference with your spouse. Recognize that the same thing you see in them is the same thing that is in you, sin. And while it might manifest itself differently, and it might be spoken venomously, and it might be acted out passive-aggressively. It's the same shared problem. And recognize that there is hope for your spouse like there's hope for you. And I want you to see this in the most profound way. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3 as we finish in Jeremiah. God often, when He speaks to His people Israel, He speaks to them in a relationship of marriage. And He speaks about how they are married to Him and how He interacts with them. And I want you to look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel... I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. 
Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. God is warning Judah against making the same mistake that Israel had made. In her idolatry, Israel had polluted the land and broken her covenant with God. And yet, verse 11 shows, did not listen. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say. Now I want you to listen to these words. Return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Friends, what I want you to see here is that the Lord does with Israel what he does with us. He acknowledges honestly, and quite honestly, if, we're, if we could assess this ourselves, embarrassingly, how unfaithful we have been to the Lord. How we have played, in the words of Scripture, how we have played the whore. And yet, God does not abandon his people, though they deserve it. He keeps calling to return, O faithless people. In fact, even more radical than that, he's like, you know what? Maybe they're still not getting it. Hey, Hosea, do me a favor. See that woman named Gomer? That's an old school term right there. Gomer, listen, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go marry Gomer. Um, she's a prostitute. I know she's a prostitute. I want you to go marry her, make her your wife. Hosea marries Gomer, makes her his wife. Amazing marriage. Like, who would marry this prostitute? You know what the prostitute does? She leaves her husband, and she goes back to sleeping with a bunch of other men. It was radical already that he married the woman. That was scandalous already. But now the woman whom he married is now back to her old ways. She's sleeping around again. God tells Hosea, go get her. Bring her back. Commit yourself to her again. God says, I'm going to teach the entire nation of Israel that your marriage is their story. For those of us who are Christians, this is simultaneously encouraging and sobering. There is not a Christian amongst us, myself included, that has not, since we have come to faith in Christ, been perfectly faithful to the Lord. That has not, in some sort of spiritual way, cheated on God. And yet God has not abandoned us. 
I would abandon myself. That God has not abandoned. What I'm saying is take the gospel, the good news of what it means to be loved, that deeply, that personally, that shockingly. Now, show that kind of love to your spouse. Does that mean that God somehow minimized the definition of sin of Israel? You know, it's not that bad. No. It was unbelievably tragic. It was unbelievably wicked, and yet he continued to pursue and pursue. I'm not asking you to love your spouse because your spouse deserves it. I'm not asking you to love your spouse because I promise that if you do, they will one day thank you. I do not know that. I'm asking you in the spirit of the good news of Jesus Christ who loves you to love your spouse the way God has, is, and will continue to love you. So that you're making much not of how great of a spouse you are, you're making much of how good of a God He is who saves sinners like you and your spouse. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.